So, Father God, in the name of Jesus, we do just profess that it's Christ alone. It's not our good works or our attempts at good deeds that gets us into the kingdom. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. So, Father God, I do pray that you would liberate us with that. Every other world religion says you do enough good things, you can experience heaven, you can experience nirvana. But the message of Jesus Christ in the gospel says you can't do enough. That Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. God, I pray that you would free us by that. That it is not Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus only. And we rest in your grace today. Now, Father, do pray that the seed of your word falls on good ground. That it would produce fruit. You would change us with it and by it. Be with me, Lord God. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Now, that clock says it is 940. So I guess I've got an extra hour to preach. Amen. Oh, y'all are clapping? Uh, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to act like it's uh, 1040. But if you've got your Bible, you to meet me in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Uh, I just began last week, my first Sunday with you as pastor and people by saying, I don't know y'all. I, was, I grew up in Atlanta, so we say y'all down there. I don't, I don't know y'all that well. Um, and you don't know me. But for most of us in this room, we've got some common ground. And that common ground is Jesus Christ. And so we're beginning our journey together as pastor and people, uh, looking at the life of Jesus Christ and his impact on our lives. And we're calling this series, First Things First. Last week, we looked at the priority and preeminence of Jesus Christ, even over good things like ministry. We were in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus is applauding this wonderful church who is this hardworking church, this faithful church, this discerning church, and he thanks them for nine things that they do well, and yet Jesus says, verse 4, but I have this against you, have abandoned your first love. And we learned last week that good things become bad things when they become ultimate things taking the place of Jesus Christ. This week I want us to look at the priority of Jesus even over rules. I want us to look at the priority of Jesus over rules. To help us with that, I want you to meet me in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. If you have it, say amen. If you don't, say wait up. Matthew chapter 19 beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, notice he call him Lord, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? 
And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. We're going to come back to that. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I was born in 1973, um, but really I grew up in the 80s. I'm a child of the 80s. In fact, I just saw that CNN is coming out with a documentary on, on the 80s. That was my era. I, I grew up in the era of stonewashed jeans. Adidas tennis shoes with the fat boy laces. Anybody remember the fat boy laces? And you could, you know, you would color coordinate. You'd coordinate. You'd coordinate the colors of the fat boy laces with what you were. I, I grew up in an era where hip-hop was just coming of age. And of course, you can't talk about growing up in the 80s without talking about Michael Jackson. I loved Michael Jackson. I loved Michael Jackson so much, I asked for the unthinkable. I asked my father for permission to get a jerry curl. Now, praise God, he turned me down. Someone, we, we ought to be thankful. There are times we ask for stuff and God says no. Thank God. He turned me down. I mean, I wanted the jerry curl with the matching thriller jacket. The whole, we, we used to wear high waters to school. Y'all remember that? Um, but, but I loved, I loved Michael Jackson. In the 80s, it, it, you had to love Michael Jackson. He was the most prolific performer, performer of our era, of our generation, the king of pop. There was none like him. He could dance like nobody's business. His story into how he became this great entertainer is well known. In fact, the one who really molded and shaped his life into the performer that he became was his own father, Joseph Jackson. Legend has it that Joseph Jackson would come home from work and would push the furniture there in that front room of their little house in Gary, Indiana, all the way to the edges and would demand that Michael and his brothers perform, do the steps to the choreography flawlessly. And if for some reason they messed up, Joseph Jackson would have his belt in hand and would beat them mercilessly. How did this turn out, Joseph Jackson's driving tactics? On the one hand, we could say very pragmatically, although we vehemently disagree with his methods, he got what he wanted. He got one of the greatest performers of all time. But there was a dark side to Joseph Jackson's demanding ways. For while he produced a child who could do the steps... In the process of Michael doing the steps, he lost his connection with his dad. In fact, if you ever watched an interview with Michael Jackson and the subject of his father came up, you would notice he never called his dad, dad. He never called his father, father. But he always called him, Joseph. Here's a man who learned how to do the steps. 
But in the process of doing the steps, he lost his connection with his dad. The problem with many church folk is we learn to do the steps. We learn how to perform. But those no, there's no real passion for our father. Many church folk forget that what saved you, what got you into the kingdom, grace, is what keeps you were in the kingdom, grace. But we tend to, once we get saved, somewhere along the line, reduce Christianity to a matter of my performance. We think that Christianity is ultimately about doing the right steps. Having quiet times and times. So we think that the fact that I don't drink alcohol makes God love me more. We think that the fact that I tithe somehow, some way makes me a better Christian than someone else. We think, some of us, that the fact that I serve in ministry or that I know the fine points of doctrine, somehow, some way, that makes God love me more. In other words, one of the things that I'm trying to get at, and I want to put a label to this, this whole notion of Jesus not being enough, but Jesus plus my performance, we would call that legalism. Tony Evans, I just read his latest book, The Power of the Cross, and in his latest book he deals in one chapter with this subject of legalism. He defines legalism this way. Will you look at it with me? What then is legalism? Legalism, Dr. Evans says, is that system of rules and regulations that govern and define your identity and spiritual living entirely on your performance. It makes keeping rules the basis of your spiritual victory. It says you are what you do. This is an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The legalist fundamentally says, Jesus, what you did for me on the cross was not enough. I must add to what you did on the cross in order to base my sense of spiritual esteem and identity. The legalist fundamentally says, Jesus plus something equals everything, when in reality, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So the legalist, hear me now, the legalist is not the person who doesn't drink. But the legalist is the person who thinks they're better and that God loves them more because they don't. The legalist is not the person who is celibate. But the legalist is the person who thinks that your virginity earns you good places with God. I want you to understand the great paradox of heaven and hell will be hell will have many virgins and heaven will have many prostitutes. We are not saved based on our moral strivings. We are saved 
by grace alone. And in my second Sunday with you, as we take step two in our journey of pastor with people, I want to put all my cards out on the table. I want to launch a full court press on legalism. Nothing kills the church faster than self-righteous, arrogant legalists who infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ and who somehow think that your behavior makes you better. So I want to be aggressive with it. Why? Because Jesus was. If you wanted to raise Jesus' blood pressure... Him be at a party and a list walks in. If you wanted to make Jesus filled with righteous indignation, have a legalist pick up stones to pelt a woman caught in adultery. Why am I aggressive with legalism? Because Jesus was and so was Paul. Paul was very adamant about legalists who infiltrating churches that he had planted and trying to convince Gentile converts that in order to be acceptable in God's sight, you now needed to add to the cross circumcision. And Paul is so upset about it. He writes a whole book. It's called the book of Galatians. He is putting a full frontal assault on legalists. Why am I aggressive with it? Because I've been a victim of it. I grew up in the church, down south in the Bible Belt. We went to church Sunday morning for about two and a half, three, three and a half hours. Sunday evening service. Then we went to something called BTUs. Anybody ever heard of BTUs? Anybody? Anybody? We, we, we went to BTUs. So a couple chocolate people raised their hand. We know about BTUs. And we went there in Wednesday night prayer group and Bible study. And it, it's, it's almost as if um, the pastor was sending the message that, that you were on the varsity side of the kingdom if you went to, to Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service, Wednesday night service. The more you were at church, he sent the message, the more you were beloved by God. That is a brand of legalism. And I remember churches back in the 80s and revival swept through our church among the young people in our church and among the young people in our sister churches and uh, hip hop was coming of age and these young people, they didn't know better. They just knew that Jesus had done something to their heart. So the way they expressed it is they wrote God glorifying Christian hip hop and they had the audacity one Sunday morning to rap in church. My senior pastor then gets up right behind them and says that music is of the devil and it will happen no more in this church and I sat and watched as these once on fire young men of God went into a spiritual and emotional tailspin and if you were to ask where they are now I see them on Facebook most of them don't even come back to church and what killed their faith wasn't unbelievers what killed their faith wasn't just the trials of life what killed their faith was self-righteous arrogant pastors legalists I was just on a plane the other day, sat down, going from Charleston, South Carolina, going to New York City. I just preached at a conference there at uh, Charleston, South Carolina, sat down next to this uh, one woman. She was very attractive. Whenever that happens, first thing out of my mouth is, hey, I'm a pastor. I love Jesus. And here are my three kids. (laughs) We call that female repellent. That's female repellent. 
sit down next to her, got that out the way, and she says, you're a pastor. She goes, "Uh, I grew up in the church. I said, do you go to church? She said, no, I don't go to church anymore. And then as she just got to talking, she said, I don't even believe in the concept of sin or wrong. I said, well, tell me about that. Why don't you believe in that? And she just unpacked for me, growing up in the church, the brand of Christianity she was sold was this shame-based, guilt-ridden Christianity that pretty much says, if you don't dance within these set parameters, if you wear makeup, if you wear pants, then somehow, some way, you are less God. And now this woman is in her 40s, ain't been to church in 20 years, and what killed her was legalism. So I want to talk about it this morning. And I'm not going to talk about it from me pointing at you. If you've been saved any length of time, The natural gravitational pull of all of our hearts is to look at the cross and say, not enough, I must do certain things to make me more. Nothing is more unbiblical. Read Matthew chapter 3. God says in Matthew 3, as Jesus is coming out of the Jordan River, being baptized, God says to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now here's what I love. This is before his public ministry. He ain't healed nobody yet. He ain't turned water into wine yet. He ain't raised nobody from the dead yet. He hadn't preached a sermon yet. He hadn't performed. And God says, proud of you. That's right, that's right. By the way, that's good parenting advice. Your kids need to know, proud of you, period. I ain't proud of you because you got the A. I ain't proud of you because you didn't call home this week. I'm just proud of you. The gravitational pull in all hearts is towards legalism. Now, how do I know if I struggle with legalism? This text tells us, it gives us three indicator lights of whether or not legalism is festering and growing in your own life. Now, I want us to come to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, I love it. It is written, Matthew writes his gospel to the Jews. The distinctive of the gospel of Matthew is written to Jews. Now, think about that for a moment. Matthew writes his gospel to people who go to synagogue every week. Matthew writes his gospel to people who give their money. The average Jew in Matthew's day gave 19.2% of their annual income to the Lord. Not just 10%. Matthew writes his gospel to people who go to the temple and worship God on high and holy days. Matthew writes his gospel to people, most of whom had memorized the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, the Torah. That's right, they memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus. 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 Now you a bad Christian. You memorize Leviticus. Matthew writes his gospel to these people. He writes his gospel to church attending, money giving, temple worshiping, scripture memorizing people. He gospel, and the very fact that he writes his gospel to these people tells us that you can do all those things, but if you don't have Jesus, it means nothing. So here's what he does. He writes his gospel to show them that what qualifies you, what gets you into the kingdom, is not how much money you give, it is not the amount of quiet times you have, what gets you into the kingdom is Christ and Christ alone, and the story in the gospel of Matthew gets at this quicker than our story. The man in our story has come to be called the rich young ruler. We know that he's rich because at the end of our text it says that he has great possessions. We know that he's young because verse 20 tells us he's young. 
And we know that he's a ruler because in Luke chapter 18, Luke calls him the ruler. Now here's what you need to understand. What is he a ruler of? Most scholars tell us that he is the ruler of not an empire, but of a local synagogue. Here is this person. He is extremely wealthy. He has money. Um, people look at him and you would naturally think that with his wealth he'd be satisfied. He's young. He's the picture of vitality and vigor and strength. And to add insult to injury, he's moral. If ever there was a picture of a person who should be satisfied, if ever there was a picture of a person who should be fulfilled, it's this guy. But look at our text in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He comes up to Jesus and it's it's as if you could see the spiritual sweat dripping off of his brow. He's in consternation. There's an in which he's not fulfilled. This blows my mind. You got money. You can live anywhere you want to. You're young. You're standing on the precipice of full life and you're moral and yet he's unfulfilled. He says to Jesus in so many words, something is missing. Here's a man who's kept the Ten Commandments. Here's a man who knows the law of God. He keeps it faithfully and diligently and yet he says, in spite of all my morality, I am not fulfilled. Three indicator lights that you could be a legalist. Number one, You might be a legalist if nothing is ever enough. You might be a legalist if nothing is ever enough. Uh, Many of us, I'm guessing, have been to the Winchester house. Sarah Winchester, that house isn't too far from here. Sarah Winchester, the great heiress to the Winchester gun fortune. Uh, she was plagued uh, by evil thoughts, so she goes to a spiritualist one day, and the spiritualist says, you've got uh, uh, evil demons who are assaulting you. Here's how you get peace. I want you to build a house, and don't stop building it. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for the rest of your life, if you want peace, hammer, 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 saw, 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 build. Don't rest, don't stop, keep working, keep building, on and on you go. And that's the Winchester house. For the rest of her life, that's what she commissions. And sadly, that's not just the Winchester house, that's the legalist as well. If you feel like in order for God to be satisfied with you, you must hop on the treadmill of good works. Let me just stop you right now. You'll never get to a point in which you think enough is enough. You'll keep hammering, keep sawing, you'll keep going at it. Not too long ago, we had some Jehovah's Witnesses come to our house. Uh, And whenever Jehovah's Witnesses come to our house, I always like playing devil's advocate. I'm just so mischievous that way. Right. So typically two will come, and when two come, there's typically the mentor and the mentee. Um, there's the younger one. I always like messing with the younger one. This guy's in training. So they sit down, and we talk a little bit about Jesus, and, and, and I'll begin by asking them, tell me about the 144,000. You all use that term. What is that? One time they said to me, that's the first class section of the kingdom of God. Oh, really? So why are you knocking on all these doors? Well, we're trying to get into the 140,000. Then I ask the question, well, who's managing the list? Who has the list? Where are you ranked? Are you 100,000? Where are you? They shrug their shoulders. We don't know. And how many doors do you have to knock on to get inside that 144,000 list? 
they don't know. Then I hit them with this. The great news about Christianity is that Jesus has satisfied all those demands. That yes, He does want me to share my faith, but to be in Christ means I don't work for approval, I work from approval. So here's the legalist, never fulfilled, never satisfied, pray, 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 evangelize, 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 read their Bible, they're on this treadmill, on this rat race, because they're hoping at some point God will be satisfied with them, but I'm here to tell you that day will never come, and let me add to it, I would hate to be this guy's child. If nothing is never enough for you... Then you're going to make a horrible parent. I can't tell you of how many middle-aged parents I've sat with who kids grew up in their house, grew up in the church, but now want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And oftentimes what sent them out into the prodigal far country were legalistic parents in which they never said in so many words, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. How do you know if you're a legalist? You're fatigued. You are worn out. Nothing is ever enough. There's another indicator light that you might be a legalist. This man comes to Jesus and he says, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Verse 17, And he, speaking of Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now this, this Jesus is messing with him. I mean, Jesus, you know the right answer. The right answer is you can't do anything. But Jesus is being playful. He wants this man to see his heart. This man goes, goes, what good deed? Give me something else to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus goes, I, I can see him shrugging his shoulders. Huh, keep the commandments. I love his response. Look back at the text. Jesus says, keep the commandments. He said to him, Underline it. Which ones? Boy, you just want to smack this guy. <laughs> now there's 613 commandments. Jesus says, keep the commandments. He goes, which ones? Jesus then responds, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are some of the Ten Commandments. I'll come back to that in a moment. Now look at this man's response. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Oh, the arrogance. What do I still lack? Translation, Jesus, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, which ones? Jesus tells them, and he pretty much says, you got any extra credit? <laughs> this is indicator number two that you might be a legalist. It's the strongest indicator light of legalists. Self-righteousness. Arrogance. Spiritual pride. This man has the arrogance to say, I have kept the commands. This man has the arrogance to say that I'm doing it. I'm dotting all my theological I's and crossing all my theological T's. This man has the audacity to ask Jesus for extra credit. You can always spot a legalist miles away. They're self-righteous, arrogant people. 
who think that their performance is good enough. Jesus gets to this in Luke chapter 18. He tells the story of two men who came to the temple to pray. Look at it with me on screen. Beginning in verse 9, it says that he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How do you know if you're self-righteous? Let me give you a couple of bullet points here. Typically, self-righteous legalists have a critical spirit. You're always sizing others up. C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, says, Pride at the end of the day needs competition and comparison. You must compare yourself with others. And a spiritually arrogant person is always looking down their nose going, I'm righteous because I'm better than that person. But the reality is, that person is not the standard a holy God is. It is Christ and Christ alone. I mean, I remember being in grade school. Whenever I'd fail a test in grade school, I would always stand outside the door. Once the test came back and I found out I failed, and I'd, I'd conduct my own Gallup poll. I'd ask my class, what'd you get, 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 right? And the reason why I'd do that is I knew that if everybody failed, the teacher would have to grade on something called the curve. And I love the curve. The curve was not reality. The curve was just an acknowledgement, y'all you know, failed it, so we got to bump everybody up. But inevitably, there would be some smart know-it-all that I would want to get into a corner and lay hands on, and not for prayer. And the reason why I'd want to lay hands on this person is because they had aced the test and blew my curve. You know why they got mad at Jesus? Because Jesus shows up on the scene, and before he gets there, they were the standard. But Jesus gets there, and he's that know-it-all kid who pretty much says, you ain't the standard, I'm the standard, I'm the standard of righteousness, I'm the standard of holy. Jesus is the standard, not your neighbor. And so if that's the case, the reality is, stop looking at what other people are doing and basing your righteousness off of them. They are not the standard, God is. Self-righteous people typically have a glass half-empty viewpoint. Always poking holes. They don't know how to rejoice with those who rejoice. Always showing what's wrong. They have a critical, condemning spirit. Self-people also don't know how to give grace. If everything's by earning, if everything is by merit... They don't know how to show grace in their world. Now this is spiritual amnesia. Because show me a person who doesn't know how to extend grace. And I'll show you a person who has forgotten what it is to have received the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. We have forgotten. And at the end of the day, you know what God says about pride? It's an abomination. 
The Bible says that God resists proud. It's the image of, of me playing offensive tackle and looking at the other side of the line and there is 300 pound JJ lined up against me. The Bible says, Brian, when you walk in pride, God goes into a three-point stand lined up against you. Why does God hate pride? Because pride at the end of the day is spiritual plagiarism. It is taking the credit for someone else's work and failing to cite your source. I live in New York City and I hate the Yankees. I hate the Yankees with a passion. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. I don't know of a single Yankee that's going to be in heaven. Well, that was legalistic for me to say that. Um, the grace of God. But I love the story of Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio, the great Yankee center field to World War II. And uh, he had fought in World War II. Then his first game back at Yankee Stadium, people went to the Bronx, packed out the stadium. They were so excited to get Joe DiMaggio back. And right before the game, Joe DiMaggio thought it would be a good idea to show his appreciation to the crowd. So he picks up his young son, about three years old at the time. Joe DiMaggio Jr. picks him up, walks out onto the field. And as he's walking out onto the field, everybody's chanting, Joe, Joe, Joe. And Joe DiMaggio Jr. looks up at his dad and says, Dad, they're calling my name. That's pride, friends. It is taking the credit that belongs to our Father and thinking they're calling our name. What do you have that you did not receive? The grace to even read the Bible is a gift from God. The money that you give is a gift from God. All that we have comes from God. And for me to walk in pride is an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might be a legalist first if nothing is ever enough. You're not fulfilled. You might be a legalist secondly if you are self-righteous. But the third and final thing is you might be a legalist if you're more focused on behaviors than your heart. Here's Jesus. He... He says to him, keep the commandments. The man responds, which ones? Jesus, look at it again, says to him in verse 18, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice what Jesus gives him are some of the Ten Commandments. Now, hang in there with me. I promise you I'm coming to your neighborhood, but here's what you need to understand. The Ten Commandments can be broken down into two categories. The first category is vertical. It has to do with our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. It has to do with our relationship with God. The second commandment, second uh, list in the Ten Commandments, have to do with our relationship with others. They're horizontal. Jesus gives him, watch it now, the horizontal commandments. He says, don't commit adultery, honor your father and your mother, don't murder, don't steal. These are horizontal commandments. It has to do with how we relate to our neighbor. This man has the audacity to say, I've aced it. Now Jesus gives him one more commandment. Don't miss it. He says, huh, you've aced it, have you? One more thing. Go 
Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. The last commandment Jesus gives him is likewise a horizontal commandment. It is as if Jesus is saying, oh, you've ate the horizontal commandments. Let's really test what you think about your neighbor. Sell all that you have, bless your neighbor, and come follow me. The Bible says man goes away sorrowful. He says, thank you, Jesus, but no thanks, I can't do it. And what his actions reveal is a bad, diseased heart in which he not only owns possessions, but his possessions own him. He is not as righteous and as loving as he thinks he is. The legalist always, always, always has an inflated view of their righteousness. They always think they are more righteous than what they actually... And what this text shows us is, even though this man had good actions at the end of the day, he had a bad heart. When it comes to God, how does God change us? God does not only change our actions, but God deals with our hearts. Ezekiel 26 puts it this way. It's the promise of the new covenant. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, don't anyone leave here thinking, oh, I don't have to do anything. The message of today is, I don't have to pray, I don't have to give. I don't, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. We just don't do those first. Those things must flow out of a heart that has been changed and transformed by God. God says, here's what I do. When I save you, I don't start with your actions. I start with your heart. I perform heart surgery. I take out of you your heart of stone and I give you a new heart because God understands if I can get to your heart, I'll get to your actions. When my grandfather was 78 years old, the doctor sat him down and said, uh, Mr. Loritz, you've got three clogged arteries. He did not say to him, Mr. of years of bad eating habits, you've got these three clogged arteries, so here's what we're going to do. Change your eating habits. Now, he didn't say that to him. If he would have just said, change your eating habits, that's medical malpractice. What good is it if you stop eating pork and fried foods, but don't address the heart? So what this doctor said, before we get to your eating habits, we're going to address your heart. We're going to fix your heart. And once we clear up your heart, now we can get to your behaviors. That's what God did when he saved us. We've got bad actions. We've got bad behaviors. But God, for him to just deal with our behaviors is spiritual malpractice. God says we got to deal with your heart. You might be a legalist if nothing is ever enough. Unfulfilled, work, 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 work. You might be a legalist if you're arrogant and self-righteous. You might be a legalist if you focus more on actions than you do your heart. But as we end, (laughs) 
this text blesses me because here you have this arrogant, self-righteous dude who asks for extra credit when it comes to the commandments of God. And what does Jesus say to him? Follow me. The very fact that Jesus says, follow me, it's in spite of all your self-righteousness, in spite of all your legalism, I still can do something with you. In spite of the fact that you are arrogant, in spite of the fact that you just, the sun rises and sets on you, I still can do something with you. That gives me hope today, recovering, rehabilitating legalist, that God's grace is not just for the secular unsaved, it is also for the arrogant, church-attending, self-righteous legalist. That same grace applies. That God's grace is for me as well. I'll never forget, when I graduated college... I was poor. I was just broke. I didn't have anything. And, um, and my dad looked at me and, uh, and my dad said, look, um, here's the deal. I, I want you to have a new car and whatever you put down on the car, I'll match. Now, I had sense enough to know that I wasn't able to pay cash for a car and so I'd have to finance something. But I had no credit. I didn't have bad credit. I just had no credit. And I researched and realized if you have no credit, I wasn't going to get the kind of interest rate I needed to make the payments low enough for me to be able to afford it. So I said to dad, look, man, I've been thinking this thing through and checking it out. And I, yeah, I can put some money down, but I have no credit to be able to get the payments down to where I need. I'll never forget my dad did. My, my dad came around me. He says, he put his hand on my shoulder. He says, don't worry, son, I got you. I said, what do you mean? He says, I know you ain't got no credit. I know you don't meet the requirements to get a new loan, but I got you. I said, Dad, what do you mean? He goes, I'm a co-sign with you. I said, I don't know what that means, Dad. Dad says, you have no credit. I have perfect credit. I'm going to hitch up your no credit, can't get a good loan self to my off-the-chain credit. In other words, you're going to get qualified, but you ain't going to qualify on your own merits. You're going to get qualified off of mine. God looked at us, and we had bad spiritual credit. We could not get to heaven on our own merits. We could not get to heaven on our own efforts. We were destined for to be in hell. We were hopeless going down a one-way road that said no outlet. We had no chance to get there on our own. And God put his hand on our shoulder and says, I'm going to co-sign on heaven with you. I'm going to hitch up Jesus and his flawless credit with you and your bad credit. And you're going to get into the kingdom not because of what you did. Not because of your merits. Not because of your giving. Not because of your talent. But you're going there by grace and by Christ and Christ alone. Oh dear friends, that's what it means in grace I want abundant life. I want us to be that people of grace. That people walk in here and they don't see a perfect people. But even when we mistreat one another, even when we blow it, we keep extending grace and forgiveness. Why? Because we've received it from Jesus Christ. Every day, morning by morning, new mercies we see. Here it is, March 13th, 2016. And aren't you glad you didn't wake up this morning with March 12th mercies? But you woke up this morning with March 13th mercies.
you woke up this morning with grace. Grace. I want you to know the freedom of this grace. This grace liberates you. This grace sets you free. Not free to do your own thing, but now that you have been made free in Christ, now I want to read my word. Now I want to give my money. Now I want to share my faith because I am in awe of this awesome God who looked at me and with his grace has liberated and set me free. That's a God I want to worship. That's a God I want to serve. In just a few moments, our praise team is going to sing a song, an amazing song about God's grace. But how do we respond? If you're sitting here and you're going, Pastor, I'm struggling with legalism in my own life. Maybe you have spiritual low self-esteem. Maybe you're struggling with shame, with guilt of your past. Maybe just something you did last night or something this previous week or something that happened long ago. Maybe you're thinking you have to atone for the adultery. You have to atone for the abortion. You have to atone for that horrible thing you did. I want you to receive the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For He's come to set you free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. You can be free today. So if you're saying, Pastor, I struggle legalism self-righteousness, thinking I have to earn God's approval and today I want to be set free. Would you meet me at the altar? I want to pray with you. One recovering legalist to another. Altar is open. Would you come?